Well, good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. I heard that uh, he's risen. All right. I'm going to tell you, there's no way we could have just worshiped like that if he hadn't, huh? We are so blessed with the musicians we have here at this church. And if you ever would have asked me 20 years ago if we ever would have a choir here, I'd probably say, I know. Uh, but that choir was awesome, huh? Weren't they fantastic? Man, thanks, guys. Today, with nearly 2 billion other Christians around the world, we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, is because on the third day he rose again. Do you know why he rose again? Because he had to. The Bible says that he must rise again. Uh, it was inevitable. There was no tombstone that was large enough, wide enough, heavy enough to keep him in the tomb. He was getting out no matter what was going to happen. And as a result, he vindicated everything that he said and did up until that point. He verified it. He said it authentic. He said it with authority. And he rubber stamped it by stepping out of the tomb on the third day. I, I don't know about you, but that's powerful in and of itself. And for 2,000 years, people have been trying to prove the resurrection false. And here we are celebrating the resurrection once again. I guess they still haven't proven it false yet, have they? But let's go back into the Word, if you will, to John's Gospel, chapter 20, where we will begin to remember and to celebrate this day. The crucifixion has taken place. The death of Christ has taken place. He has been taken off the cross. He's been carried to a borrowed tomb. He's been laid there. The Sabbath then occurred and then the day after, on the first day of the week, chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, the first day of the week in the Jewish calendar is Sunday, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It's interesting, one of the other gospel writers tell us that as the women were walking to the tomb, they were talking amongst themselves, desiring to uh, address the body, to uh, anoint the body. They were concerned once they got there that, oh, by the way, um, we, we didn't bring anybody to roll the stone away from the tomb. Isn't it amazing that God knew they were in need of that before they even said anything? God sent angels to take care of that. And as the ladies made their way to the tomb, verse 2, so she ran. And as she got there, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We know this individual to be John himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. 
and we do not know where they have laid him. Still not fully comprehending all that has taken place, these ladies in their sincerity, coming to dress the body on the first day of the week, discovering the tomb empty, still didn't know how to contextualize it or, or to process it. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and when they were going towards the tomb, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the faith cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he, what? Must rise from the dead. Underline that, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Two questions. Number one, why did he have to rise again? That word must there means it was inevitable that this was going to happen, that nothing could keep him there in the tomb. He needed to be released. Nothing could hold him. It was an inevitability that his body would be moved by the resurrection itself. But the second question is, why did the disciples run? And those are the questions we are going to look at today. By the first century, by the 30-some years later, I should say, the question of the ability of resurrection in and of itself was being questioned amongst the known world. As Paul took the gospel of Jesus Christ into the known world, those outside of Judaism began to question the true ability of resurrection in and of itself. When we speak of resurrection, we are speaking of this, one who raises from the dead to never die again. There were many people throughout the New Testament that were raised from the dead by by Jesus, by Peter, by Paul, but they all died again. Jesus was the first to raise from the dead and never to die again. And this concept was being challenged. And Paul writing to one of these churches who was confronted by this doubt of the ability of resurrection wrote back and said this, and I'd like to read it to you if I may. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. 
And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most pitied. Here's what he's saying. If the resurrection didn't take place and there is no such thing, then it was impossible for Christ to rise again. And therefore, our faith, the foundation, the cornerstone of what we believe as Christians has eroded from underneath us. And therefore, we truly have no hope. If there was only a minuscule of blessing that was discovered in Christ to be merely lived out in this life, then he says we are to be pitied amongst all people. The Christian faith doesn't look at just today or tomorrow. It looks at eternity. It takes the big picture into consideration. As so many today live for the day alone, not worrying about the future and never considering the past, Christianity looks at the big picture. And because of the resurrection, we now can approach death as a Christian with confidence. We no longer have to be afraid. We don't have to worry and be afraid or scared of death any longer because on the third day our Savior rose again. And though we may die and will die here in this earth, we will simply close our eyes as one falls asleep and open them in paradise, heaven with our King. That's a great thought. We couldn't have that hope if he didn't raise on the third day. And so those who try to disprove Christianity and those who try to to dismiss it and dispense of it will continuously and often attack the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, as many have discovered, when they begin to try to prove it false, many of them come to saving faith. And I think of Lee Strobel's himself. In the movie Case for Christ, if you haven't seen it, please go and see it because it will impact your life. Josh McDowell was another one who set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then to be only to become a champion of the Christian faith. But there was one before all of them. You know what his name was? Paul. And he wanted to dismiss Christianity altogether. In fact, he went as far as to take Christians and to persecute them and to have them turn back to Judaism by imprisoning them and by persecuting and torturing them and even having some of them stoned. And do you know what happened to Paul? He got knocked off his high horse, literally. And as a result, God got a hold of his heart. And Jesus said something very interesting to Paul at that moment that may be very equitable to you and I this morning. And that is this. He asked Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? It means, why are you kicking against your own conscience? You've seen and we have demonstrated the authenticity of Christianity to you, Paul, and that I am the Savior that the Jewish people have been waiting for. I am the Messiah. Why do you continuously fight against that reality, that truth? And finally, Paul submitted himself to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and as a result became the champion of the New Testament, writing the vast portion of it. If Jesus did not rise again, we are without hope and we are without a Savior. 
But I tell you, the scriptures tell us that he must, and he did. And as a result, now we can have confidence in our Christian faith like no other religion of the world. As a result of rising on the third day, as a result, we find four things that Jesus Christ must then complete, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ verifies these four things. Number one, he must keep his word. Notice what he says to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. As the disciples were there getting nervous about Jesus because the persecution from the religious leaders was ever so growing, Jesus then drops a bomb on them and says, see, we are going to Jerusalem. Now they knew that by going to Jerusalem, he was placing himself in harm's way. And the Son of Man, once we get here, Jesus tells them very clearly, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and will be condemned to death and delivered him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Now, up until that point, you could say, well, maybe Jesus just had insightful knowledge. He knew that the, the antagonism that was rising against him when I get there, guys, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be brought before a trial. I'm going to possibly be flogged. I'm possibly going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked by them all. I'm probably going to be crucified. But then he goes on to say something at the end of it all. Check this out. And he will be raised on the third day. Wait a minute, Jesus. And by rising on the third day, Jesus kept his word. He kept his word to his disciples, his followers. He kept his word to you and I. There's nothing, I think, worse than being in a relationship with someone you love and then have that relationship tarnished by lying, deception, by not keeping promises made, not keeping commitments made. It's very hard to trust a person going forward when, be, when you've been lied to by that person, when you have been let down by that person, and so forth. And yet God comes to us today, keeping his word and establishing the validity of this statement by him rising on the third day, not knowing that he in and of himself could not do this, but knowing that God the Father, the Spirit, would raise him from the dead. It's hard to be in that relationship with someone once that relationship has been violated. But God will never violate the relationship that you have with him. He will always keep his word to you. And as the disciples heard this, it's interesting, they gave no response. They were in awe of what he was saying, and they, they just sit there and listen to it all. And yet, even after it happened, they did not fully understand all that has taken place. But let us understand that God keeps his word. If God kept his word in such a way, I ask you the question then, is everything else that he said true? He rose on the third day exactly 
according to the manner in which he said he would. And then, keeping his word, we then have to, by the evidence, look at everything that he said up until that point, such as when he made the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. True or false? In John three seventeen and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And the previous verse before that, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The resurrection causes me by necessity to go back and to look at the other claims in which Jesus made. He verified and fulfilled the claim that on the third day He would rise again, and therefore, out of necessity, as I had said, we must look at everything else that God has said to us. We live in a very difficult time, don't we? We are inundated by information on every side of us. And yet we don't know how to discern what is true or false within that information. Not only are we bombarded by information, but also I tell you that we have so many news sources, those that are true, and now contending with fake news sources, we just don't know who to believe any longer. And as a result, we feel like we are in a constant fog, walking through a maze at nighttime, not knowing which way is out. But I tell you this morning that God will never lie to you. And what God says to you will not be like that of the world. For often the world will tell you what you want to hear, but God will tell you what you need to hear. And He'll never lie to you. You know why I know that? Because the Bible says that God cannot lie. He'll tell you straight up where you are. Now, a lot of people don't like that. They'd rather be told exactly what they want to hear. Just tell me what I want to hear. But God will tell you what you need to hear. And he says, you can trust every word that I have ever said to you because on the third day, Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb just as he said he would. But not only must he keep his word, he must finish his work. John 19.30 And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. From the very first day Jesus walked on this earth, he was about mission. He had a task to accomplish that God his Father gave him. And he wasn't going to rest until that task was fulfilled. What was that task? Well, the task was what we looked at this Friday in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. 
He came to pay a penalty. He came to uh, take on a judgment that was prepared for you and I. One out of one person dies because of sin. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good enough. None of us are perfect before God. All of us are in a desperate, dire situation before God. He is holy. We are not. And there was nothing that we could ever do to rectify that before God. There was a payment that was due, a debt that was due, created by that sin that we could never pay. And we were in a hopeless condition. And God said, I am going to send my son and he is going to pay it forward for you. Have you ever been in Starbucks and the guy in front of you has paid for your coffee? I haven't. What does that feel like? I still hope standing in the Chipotle line, someone will be generous before me. But Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, paid it forward. He paid a debt that we could not pay. And as we stand before God, if we will receive Him and accept Him, God the Father will look at us in our guilt and in our sin, but through the lens of Jesus. As if Jesus was standing between Him and I, and then He sees me perfect. I don't know how that's possible. But He sees me perfect because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Past, present, and future sins all washed away and done away with in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as a result, I can now stand before Him not only forgiven of my sin and washed clean. If God simply did that for me, that would be fantastic. But he goes one step further. You see, if he just simply forgave me of my sin, I would then have a net zero balance before God. All the bad has been covered and washed away by Christ. But see, there's a good that needs to come too, a righteousness that needs to come too, that I can never produce for myself. So not only does Jesus wash me clean of my sin, he then robes me in his perfect righteousness before the Father. What do you say to that? And he has finished his work. It is done. It is finished. That's what he is saying. The ransom has been paid. The rising on the third day means ransom has been received and verified by God the Father. God finishes what He starts. And when you come to Christ as an individual, and you come as you are, and you lay yourself before the Lord, and you repent of your sin and believe on Him for eternal life, He then takes everything that you've ever done, and He washes it away, past, present, and future. But then He begins a work in you. You know why? Because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And he begins to work inside of you, allowing you to become whole again as an individual. And that work that he begins in you, he will continue to perfect until the day of Christ's return. 
bringing you back to the image in which you were originally created in before Adam and Eve fell, that image of perfection. Now, we will not arrive at perfection before we stand before Him in glory in heaven, but each and every day we will be making steps in that direction. As the Hebrew writer said, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or Paul writing in Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God sees us as we are and then sees us as we can be. And he begins that work in us. And he does so because the third is that he must author the good news of the gospel. Mark sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Because of the resurrection, we find that our story with Jesus ends very differently, doesn't it? How many of you have ever gone to see a movie or began reading a lengthy book only to discover that the end is absolutely terrible? And you just want to grab the usher at the theater and say, listen, here are my 3D glasses. I want my money back. This ending was terrible. Or you go to see a movie that's supposed to be all about hope and it was the most depressing thing you've ever discovered and you say, I know why it's about hope because at the end of it, you don't have any. (laughs) It's terrible. And if all of the gospel writers would have ended, Jesus Christ was crucified, he was put into the tomb, the end. Kind of anticlimactic. Wow, I wish that would have ended a little different. But now that he has risen from the grave, the gospel, the good news has been created. And not only can we talk about his crucifixion for the payment of sin, we can talk about his resurrection, which is the the receipt of that payment for sin by God the Father, testifying before all the world that he has accepted the, the sacrifice on which Christ has made on our behalf. And now we have something to really talk about. So much so that Paul began his letter to the Romans and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of uh, zeal and passion for the good news that has been given to us and clarified for us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And that there is something more and greater still yet to come for us who believe in him. The the news of this gospel has been challenged by so many for so long. And today we see a rise of atheism within our country, and I wonder what they hope for in the end. But yet the good news of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, still is radically changing lives one right after another to anyone who will believe and receive the Savior. And number four, He must set us free, John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I made a comment on Friday that people apart from Christ, though they feel as if they are living their life, 
I challenge them because I believe that they're only existing in life. Because to really understand life, you need to have that relationship with God through Christ. And in that relationship, a life more abundant is provided for us. Now, that doesn't mean a material abundance. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be healthy all the time. It means that I'm going to have a dimension of life that the world cannot understand and know apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus said that if you've received the Son, the Son will set you free, and you will be free indeed. Now, as a nation that prides itself upon freedom, I often ask the question, do Americans today know what it really means to be free? I ask that question because I see many Americans living in a free nation who are anything but free. Can you be free when you're under a mountain of debt? Can you be free when you're in bondage to pornography or or, um, uh, alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be? Are you truly free? Is that truly a freedom to have? Oh, we can be surrounded by freedom, but what we do with that freedom is really the question, isn't it? We won't even talk about the lack of gratitude for the freedom that we have in our nation. But Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As one wrote, he says, this means that when a person comes to the Savior and receives eternal life from Him, that person is free from the slavery of sin, legalism, superstition, and religiosity. And what does it mean to be free from sin? Often we reduce freedom and define it as allowing ourselves to do anything that we want to do. But freedom also must be freedom from those things that we don't want to do. So true freedom is not only allowing us to do those things that we want uh, to do, but not doing those things that we don't want to do. And so God has provided us a freedom in Christ to be free indeed to allow us to worship and glorify Him with our life each and every day. As one wrote, he says, the Son of God also has the authority to liberate spiritual slaves from their bondage to sin and its consequences. Real freedom consists of liberty from sin's enslavement to do what we should do. It does not mean that we may do just anything that we please. We are now free to do what pleases God, which we could not do formally. When we do what pleases God, we discover that it also pleases us. Hope for real freedom, therefore, does not rest on simply the covenants that were made previously but on the sole action of Jesus Christ and the resurrection on the third day. As Jesus said to those who were listening, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He kept his word. He finished the work. He authored the gospel. 
He set us free. And we can be assured of this because on the third day he walked out of the tomb and rose again. As we conclude this morning, Paul then writing again in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most pitied. And Paul wrote this saying, but yet he has risen. Now there were two questions that we started to answer at the beginning. Why must he rise on the third day? And number two, why were these two gentlemen running to the tomb? The two disciples that were found running, now it was very... uh, unbecoming of a a Jewish man to run. They they wore these garments that they had to literally carry in their hands to run. It was a sight to see, to say the least. But they ran to the tomb. They were provoked to run to the tomb. And as they were running to the tomb, it says Peter slowed. And the disciple in whom Jesus loved ran faster. And then when that disciple, John, got to the tomb, he stopped. He didn't even go in, but Peter just barreled right ahead. Peter and John represent many of us here today. You see, John, the last time he saw his Savior was when he stood at the foot of the cross and he watched his Savior die, placing Mary, the mother of Jesus, into the care of John. And the last image that he had of Jesus was there on the cross. And he loved the Lord and couldn't believe that this was the finality of all that Jesus had done. And so he just took off that love motivating him, that love just desiring to see it all. But yet when he peeked in, when he stopped in, when he looked in, he just stopped a moment to consider all that had taken place. Personally, I believe that as he looked in and saw the tomb was empty, he then just turned around, looked up to God and went, yes, it's all true. Now, Peter, on the other hand, was much different. For Peter, it says the last time that he saw his Lord is when the Lord and him locked eyes upon one another after Peter had just denied him for the third time. And Peter, being Peter, said to the Lord very distinctly, even if everyone else denies you, Lord, I will never do it. Ain't happening. Jesus said, Peter, listen, I know you better than you know yourself. And before the end of the day and before the crows, you are going to deny me three times. He says, no way. It's not going to happen. I love when Peter argues with God. I just, I can relate to that sometimes. But God knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And Peter then was confronted by an individual that was so scary that caused him to deny his Lord and Savior, a little girl. 
And Peter denied knowing Jesus. And I can anticipate as Peter was running to the tomb, thinking that it's possible that he rose on the third day. Did Peter begin to slow, considering, oh no, the last time I saw him, I denied him. The last time I saw him, I turned away from him. The last time I saw him, I walked away from him. But when it came to the tomb itself, Peter barreled in because he was hoping, undoubtedly, that the Lord had risen, that he himself could get right with Jesus. Why do I say that? It seems presumptuous to do so. Well, it is interesting, in one of the other Gospels, when Jesus arises on the third day, the angels tell the ladies to go back to the disciples, specifically Peter. See, Peter had an appointment with Jesus. And that appointment was fulfilled as he sat on the side of a lake with the risen Lord, and Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? There are some of you who sit here today because you love the Lord and you remember his resurrection and you are reminded of it on this day and you just look up to God and say, yes. And maybe you've had difficulties and challenges in your Christian life that never have dampened your love for the Lord, but sometimes you begin to question in your heart, undoubtedly, as John stood there before the dying Savior thinking that maybe these last three years that I've spent with him will all end like this. And God says, be reassured, the tomb is empty. I love you, now go on and love me even more. And then there's Peter. Peter denying the Lord three times. There are some of you here today who have lived a life in denial of God And you may be wondering, can God forgive me for that in which I have done? Can God truly forgive me? Can I truly follow Christ? Can I? But if you only knew what I did, Pastor, you probably wouldn't even let me in the church, let alone allow me to become a Christian. See, that's what it's all about. It's about God finding people right where they're at and changing their lives if they will turn to Him. You don't have to continue on in the same way any longer. You can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. And though Peter stopped for a moment to consider the possibilities, oh no, if I stand before him again, and if he is really risen, am I going to be condemned? But the hope of forgiveness drove him to barge into that tomb like nothing was standing there. It didn't matter if it would defile him or not in the Jewish culture. He ran in there because he was looking for forgiveness. If you run to Christ, if you throw yourself before Christ and say, Christ, forgive me, I guarantee he will forgive you today. In fact, I'd like you to read something that Peter wrote about the resurrection. In his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power and being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Notice what he's saying. I didn't understand the mercies of God until the resurrection. I didn't get it. I didn't know that I could have a living hope. I didn't know that I could be born again. I didn't know I could be a new creation in Christ until the resurrection. And not only that, there's this glorious inheritance waiting for me in heaven that I'll enjoy as I spend eternity with my Savior Christ. That's what Peter is saying. And I often wonder, was it this moment that brought him to that reality that allowed him to write these words? That moment when he stood before the empty tomb and said, my Savior's risen. And though they didn't fully understand it all, and you may not fully understand all of it today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we say that he keeps his word to you. He finishes the work that he started within you. He has authored the good news that allows you to come back to God, to have a relationship with God through him. And he has set us free to truly be free, to truly enjoy our relationship with him as it is meant to be enjoyed with him. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us and can mean for you today. And as we close our service and as we come together this this morning, we will end in communion. But as we end and as before we have communion, allow me to read this to you. As sinners, we have no hope beyond the grave. There's nothing ahead for us but the certainty of judgment and fiery indignation. A member of the first creation, we are under the sentence of death. But in the redemptive work of Christ, God found a righteous basis upon which he can save ungodly sinners and still be just. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Full satisfaction has been made. The claims of justice have been met. And now mercy can flow out of those who obey the gospel. In the resurrection of Christ, God indicated His complete satisfaction with the sacrificial work of His Son. The resurrection is the Father's amen to the Lord's cry, It is finished. Also, that resurrection is a pledge to all who die in Christ will be raised from among the dead. This is our living hope. The expectation of being taken home to heaven to be with Christ and to be like Him forever. As F.B. Myers calls the living hope, the link between our present and our future. For you and I who are Christians, this world is the worst it's ever going to get for us. But if you are apart from Christ today, I say to you, today is your appointment with Him. It's your moment with Him. For I tell you that this world will be the best it will ever be for you. And I'll tell you, though you feel as if you are living, I ask that you would consider my statement that actually you're only merely existing. There's so much more to life and that can only be touched and experienced through a relationship with God through Christ.
I can't explain it all to you. You have to experience it for yourself. But I will tell you this. Once you do, truly, you'll never want to go back.